All right, we are starting a new series tonight uh, in John, starting with John chapter 13. Uh, the reason why John 13. John 13 marks the, the beginning of the end of the Gospel of John. It's uh, in the other three Gospels, it's known as the Last Supper, but John actually doesn't even mention the Supper itself. He mentions some things that happened at the supper and some conversations that took place afterwards. And when you listen to, when you read the things Jesus said at that event, and he moves straight from there to the garden, and from there straight to the trial, and from there straight to the cross, and from there straight to the tomb, you realize this is where our faith comes from. This is the root, this is the origin of Christianity. And sad to say, I think we can all agree, American Christianity, just like Christianity anywhere else, can get off course sometimes. We can get focused on things that don't really matter. Things that maybe they're good, but not ultimate. Maybe things that don't really have anything to do with our faith uh, that might be decent things in some ways get opted in, and we're focused on those instead of what matters most, the eternal matters. Uh, and so sometimes it's good to come back to the beginning and say, what is our faith really about? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does He expect of people who call themselves Christians? And what, what's the end of this? What, is, what does this lead? Where are we headed as the people of God? And that's, that's why I chose this. Um, it, it's spring, and we, I plan to be in this until summer, uh, so it won't line up exactly with Easter. That might bother some of you. You know, when Easter hits, we still won't be to the empty tomb in this study of John. Uh, so if, if that's going to bother you, I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, the, the good news is the, the tomb is empty every day and not just Easter Sunday. So uh, just with that warning, I need for you to get your head around this. Uh, I, I, I believe whenever you're reading narrative passages of the Bible, stories, it's really helpful to try your best to picture it. It brings it into the realm of the real world. It, it reminds you these aren't just characters in a story. They actually live. They actually experience these things. So I want you to picture a, a small room full of a lot of people on edge, a lot of very ambitious people. And these are people who uh, have left behind their families, their jobs, uh, their hometowns, because they think they found the one who was the Messiah, the one that has been promised since the Garden of Eden, uh, the one who will come and deliver their people. They think they have found him, and they're going to follow him as long as it takes to get to the place where he's king of Israel, and the Gentiles are put back in their place, and Israel is exalted again. And so they're excited about these things. Now they're in Jerusalem. It's Passover week. A few days earlier, they came into the city... And they were greeted by a cheering throng of people who placed palm branches on the streets and pour, pour, uh, threw their coats uh, on the path. And, and Jesus rode in on the colt of a donkey, which is part of the Scripture's prophecy that the Messiah, is something the Messiah will do. And so they're excited. And then there's one man in the, in the room, the only one who alone deserved glory, deserved uh, to champion himself, and instead of being ambitious, he shows them a different way. So John 13 verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, 
He loved them to the end. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Uh, You can also use the notes that I printed up for you if you want. That's that same version. Uh, If you use your own version, that's fine. Just know that's going to sound a little different. But when it says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart, that that term hour doesn't refer to a, a, a place on the clock. It, it's a, it's a, that's a specific term. That, that refers to God's time, you might say. The predetermined time when something important is about to happen. And this is John's way of signaling a major shift in the story. Now, I need to point something out. If you've never noticed this before, it's kind of jarring. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, aren't like biographies today. If you read a biography today, it's, very, it's usually very logically laid out. You know, the first chapter is, here's where this person was born and grew up, and maybe the second chapter is, as a young person, here's how they discovered their calling, and, and then it goes on from there. The story of Jesus is very different. You get a birth story in two out of the four Gospels. Uh, you get one childhood story in Matthew, and then nothing, and then at the age of around 30, we think, he starts his ministry. And then it gets even stranger when you get to the, the week, the last week of his life. Because here in John, that's about half the book that starts on what we call Maundy Thursday, you know, the, the, the conversation we're about to look at, and ends with the empty tomb. That's, that's all half the book of John, which tells you something. I mean, we just celebrated Martin Luther King Day. If you read a biography of Martin Luther King, his death is an important event, but it, it, it covers a couple of pages because we focus on his life. With Jesus, we focus so much attention on his death, and that should tell you something. I'll tell you another thing. Uh, if, you, if you talk about the way someone died, Nobody, you're talking about JFK, for instance, nobody says, uh, do you remember when the assassination took place? We'd all say, well, what assassination? Uh, if you're talking about uh, someone who was hanged, do you remember the hanging? Well, what hanging? But if you say the crucifixion today, everybody knows what you're talking about. And that's because of the death of Jesus and the difference it made in the world. John is signaling a major shift here. And then he says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That word to the end doesn't just mean to the end of his life. It means to the uttermost. He loved them to the ultimate extent. And it's not talking about what's immediately about to happen, which most of you already know is washing the feet of his disciples. It's talking about the crucifixion itself. It's talking about, I'm going to love you to the utmost. I am going to die for your sins. You're going to see in vivid display the ultimate uh, aspect of uh, the ultimate act of love. And again, John never mentions the Last Supper. He's the only one of the four Gospels that never talks about the Last Supper, but it's clearly what's going on here. That's why he mentions the Passover. All right, so verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back from God, back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So again, in order to picture this, you can't picture Da Vinci's The Last Supper because they didn't use tables. 
back then in this culture. They didn't sit in chairs, and they certainly weren't all sitting on one side. This is so hard for me to even wrap my mind around it because it's so different from our practice, but they sat on the floor. In fact, they reclined. So you, you need to picture disciples lounging in a sense, you know, on one arm with the other arm picking the food up off of what's in front of them. So as Jesus is washing their feet, he's not even, they're not even able to look him in the eye because their feet are behind them. Um, John is interesting. Out of all the Gospels, he's the one that tells us the most about what Jesus is thinking. John was written much later. I just assume that John spent that much more time with the Holy Spirit and learned from the Holy Spirit what Jesus was thinking. Uh, and what we find from John is Jesus was not a victim. It's common today among some Christians and a lot of unbelievers to think that Jesus was a very good person, an innocent victim of a cruel system. But Jesus was not a victim. He knew what was happening. He knew what his calling was, and he followed it. These disciples had come in fresh off the street, and that meant their feet were dirty. This is something we don't understand because we wear closed-toed shoes, generally speaking. And even if we don't, we're walking on paved streets and sidewalks. Their feet were dirty. Customarily, when you held an event and people, you invited people over to your house, you would have someone there to wash their feet for them. That was, that was good hospitality. But it was a very demeaning thing to do because to touch someone else's feet, I mean, you could, not have, you could not have found someone to give you a pedicure in the first century. It just didn't exist. To touch someone else's feet was considered highly demeaning. So it had to be a slave, preferably a Gentile. You wouldn't want a, a fellow Jew to do that. Or, I'm sorry, ladies, it's just the world they lived in. You would ask your wife to do it. <laughs> but no man who was not a slave would voluntarily do this. And you notice these disciples come in and none of them volunteer. Hey, uh, Andrew, uh, I, I, just sit down. I'll wash your feet for you. No, it's none of them are going to do that. In fact, Luke 22 tells us, this same scene, that while they're sitting around the table, they have an argument about which one of them is the best, which one of them is highest in the kingdom of God. And this is a, an argument they've had before. And that's when Jesus does what he did. And two things accentuate the humiliation of the moment for Jesus. And, and one is that he stripped off his clothes. Now, I know it's pretty common in this day and age to see young men you know, jogging down the street with their shirt off, and we don't think anything of it. But in that culture, to disrobe meant to lose dignity. So you didn't do that unless... A, you were a slave and you had to, or, or B, you were out in your workplace like Peter and Andrew and James and John on the fishing boat, and they were offshore and they were, they were stripped for work. And, but otherwise, you didn't want people to see you without your outer garments on. That was demeaning. That made you look slave-like. Jesus does it. He strips to the waist. He strips down to his uh, underwear, you might say, wraps the towel around him. That's demeaning. Secondly, have you ever thought about this? Some of you know this. He washes the feet of Judas, and he knows what Judas has come to do. He knows this man within a few hours will betray him, and yet he washes Judas's feet. And can I just say this? The next time you struggle to forgive somebody who's hurt your feelings, who's hurt you in some way, I want you to think about Jesus washing Judas's feet. 
That is Jesus showing what love looks like. And also, Jesus had been telling the disciples over and over and over again, greatness is measured by servanthood. Greatness is measured by putting yourself last, by not drawing attention to yourself, by serving others instead of asking them to serve you. Do you think they got the message? No, that's why they were already having, they were once again having that same discussion over who was best. And imagine Jesus knows what none about, nobody else in the room knows, that just within a few hours he's going to be arrested and he's going to be crucified in the morning. This is a moment of extreme stress for him. You ever think that, you ever do that little thought experiment? If I knew I had uh, six hours to live, what would I do? Jesus was in that position. And he chooses that time to teach his disciples a lesson about love. That tells you something about how important this was to Jesus, that they understand what love looks like because he's not just, he's not just gonna die for their sins. He wants to get them ready to carry his movement forward. And they can't do that if they're ambitious for themselves and their own greatness. So, verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. All right, there's, there's several things to unpack there. You, some of you are familiar with this term, but ancient Israel was a shame and honor-based culture. That's different from our, our culture. Our culture is a guilt and innocence culture. There's a lot to that, but, but part of that is uh, we, don't, we don't worry about honor as much as they did in those times. And, and in some places uh, around the world today, there's still this honor-based idea where uh, if someone insults your honor or the honor of your family, you have to do something to regain that honor. That's why there's such a thing as honor killings when a woman in that society has disgraced the family. Uh, it's why there are blood feuds between families in those kinds of cultures. In the ancient world, in, in ancient Israel, this was a shame and honor culture. Uh, again, hard for us to wrap our minds around or even understand what that's about, but you probably remember being a teenager. Teenage world is kind of a shame and honor culture too, isn't it? Because if you're a teenager, unless you are very secure in yourself, and I don't know many teenagers who are, I certainly wasn't. You measure so much by how your peers see you. You're so terrified that they will see you in a way that makes you look dishonored, that makes you look embarrassed. Uh, you know, what, what's, what's your worst nightmare that all your friends are going to be over and your parents pull out your baby pictures? Oh, look, here's, here's Jeff when he was naked. You know, he's six, six months old. You know, oh, mom, don't do that. You know, it, to be turned down when you, you ask someone out on a date, that's, that's hard. And then to find out she went and told everybody you asked her out, and, and that's, that's tough. And then you've got to go back to school and know that everybody's talking about you. And those are the minor versions. Um, I can tell you, because I remember being a teenage boy, your worst fear is that you will appear weak. 
And so you end up getting into fights that you can't win because you can't walk away because then people think you're weak. But then if you lose the fight, they think you're weak too. So that, it, it's pretty tough. Um, and, and for girls, and, and this, by the way, this is a big reason why teenage boys do so many stupid things, drive like maniacs and do these crazy stunts because they have to prove to their friends, I'm just as brave, I'm just as strong, I'm just as as fearless as you. And I think from having raised a girl, it's even harder for the girls. Now it's not so much about strength and weakness as it is other factors, but there's that same sense of if I'm ostracized, if I'm, if I'm seen as, as different or as not as good, then that's suicide for me. It's very, very difficult. Now imagine that there is a popular kid in a school who says, I don't care. I'm going to identify with the kids that are shunned by everybody else. I'm going to reject all that foolishness. You know, some big kid wants to fight me. I'm just going to say, I don't have a problem with you. You can go fight somebody else. That's hard for us to imagine, but that was Jesus. Jesus walked in the shame and honor culture and said, I don't care what you think of me. I don't care whether you think I'm weak. I don't care whether you think I'm foolish. I, you, can, you can call me a friend of sinners. I'll wear that as a badge of honor because I am here to seek and to save the lost. That's all that matters. So Jesus is doing this uh, in a culture that can't imagine. I, I say all that to say, it's hard for us to even understand what a shock this was for the disciples to see him doing this. Uh, the, best, the best thing I can, I can compare it to is if you, you're, you're, you're uh, uh, oh well, your sewage, was, was blocked up, and you looked outside and the President of the United States was out there digging it up for you. I mean, you just don't expect that of someone who has power, and yet that's what Jesus is doing. Now Peter, we always laugh when Peter talks. Have you noticed that? Peter, Peter was always the first to say something, and usually it was the wrong thing until he got the Holy Spirit in him. And his objection here sounds very righteous. Lord, you can't wash me. But I don't think it was as righteous as we give him credit for. It wasn't an act of humility. Think about what Peter had done. He had invested his life in the idea of Jesus becoming king someday. And now Jesus, at this critical moment, when everybody thought, now's the time, now's when he's going to claim the kingdom, Jesus is going the opposite direction. He's making himself a servant. And so Peter, I think his objection, when, when Peter says, you're not going to wash me too, his objection is really, this isn't the direction we're going, is it? I, I thought we were headed toward the throne. Are you taking us down the road of slavery? Peter's response is, yeah, yeah, unless you're willing to walk this walk of humility, this, this road of humility and sacrificial love, you aren't going to walk with me. If you're headed for personal ambition and, and personal acclaim, then you and I are going to have to separate. And that's why Peter says, okay, then wash my whole body. He, he again shows he doesn't get what Jesus is saying. All he knows is, I, I want to be with you, Jesus, wherever you go. And that's when Jesus reassures him, don't worry, you're already clean. This, this act of washing your feet is an act of consideration for your physical body, but what I'm about to do for you is going to clean you from head to toe. So you don't have to worry about that. Just follow me. Verse 13, or I'm sorry, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. All right, so first I'm going to answer, try to answer the question I know all of you are wondering, why don't we wash feet in our church today? Because he said you should wash one another's feet. And there are Christian denominations who still have this as a part of their worship. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a, a primitive Baptist church just outside our hometown. Or my grandma called them hard shell Baptists. I always loved that term. Um, but they were foot washers. That, that was what I was told. That's the difference between them and us. Um, why don't we do that? Well, I would say for the same reason we don't greet each other with a holy kiss. Because that is a command in Scripture mentioned several times. And yet... If I came up to you and wanted to kiss you on the cheek, I, I bet nine out of ten of you would say, that's okay. <laughs> we understand that command meant something different in biblical times than it does now. In the ancient Middle East, a kiss on the cheek was an act of friendship. In today's world, in America, it doesn't mean the same thing. And so we read that and we see what he's really saying is, Greet each other warmly. Make sure that other person knows, I appreciate you. You're part of my family. Uh, you and I are brothers. You and I are, are brother and sister. That's what he's saying when he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. To, to interpret it literally and just stick to the wooden practical, uh, the wooden literal meaning is to totally miss the whole point. You see what I'm saying? And I believe it's the same with this command. If all we see when we look at this is, oh, we're supposed to wash each other's feet, I can tell you, most of you probably don't want me or anybody else other than a trained professional, if that, touching your feet. That's just, we're, we live in a different culture. We don't need someone to wash our feet for us, typically. And, and, and I don't really want somebody else's hands on my feet either. It sounds like it, it would tickle. Um, so, again, not the same thing. What is Jesus saying then? He's saying, whatever you have to do, to meet the needs of others. Even if it's demeaning for you personally, even if it, it looks like a step down for you socially, you do it because they are more important than your reputation. Uh, a great parallel passage is, is Philippians 2 verses 1 through 8. You know, Jesus says in verse 15, I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Well, in Philippians 2, 1 through 8, Paul says, do what Jesus did because he was God in the flesh, but he never said, because I'm God, I deserve these things. Because I'm divine, you must treat me this way. Jesus never once grasped on to his identity or his divinity. He never once said, how dare you speak to me that way? He never once said, uh, you know, guys, I should ride in front. I should be the one riding the camel. Y'all walk. I should get more of the food today than you because I'm the son of God and you're not. He never did that once, but instead, uh, in Paul's words in Philippians 2, he emptied himself. Doesn't mean he stopped becoming divine. He, he stopped, he, he forfeited his divine power. No, but it means I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna claim any of those privileges. I'm just going to do what it takes to, to achieve my mission, which is winning the lost. And so he humbled himself to the place where he was willing to die on a cross. And we know the way that passage ends. And therefore, God has exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. When I first became a pastor, I was in, my first two churches were very small, uh, one in my hometown, the church I grew up in, and then another in a very small town, bigger, but still a very small church, uh, 120, I think was the average attendance. And in churches like that, the pastor is the only full-time employee. And I did a lot of stuff that wasn't in the manual, you know, that wasn't in the job description, that didn't. I, we never talked about in seminary, and I had friends, and they would, I would tell them stories about, yeah, this week, here's what I did, and they would always say things like, you know, a pastor shouldn't have to do that. Pastor shouldn't have to do that. And I know they meant well, and I probably should have been more proactive in training a deacon or somebody else to do some of that stuff. So, but, but... I also knew, as soon as I heard him say it, I can't start thinking that way. I can't start thinking, this is beneath me as a pastor. That, that's, that would be the path to uh, disgracing the Lord, ultimately. And that's true not just of pastors, that's true of anybody. When you get to the point where you say, this kind of action, this kind of treatment is beneath my dignity, beneath my station, then you've gone off track. You can't sustain that and follow Christ. Now listen, I know some of you have been in the military. I know there's protocol in the military. There's protocol in law enforcement and, and in some business settings. I'm not talking about that. I mean in your personal dealings with humans. You need to treat the cleaning lady the same as you do the CEO. And you need to be willing to serve them both. That's what Jesus is saying. And in, in, in verse 16, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. He's challenging them. He's saying, I know the argument you were just having. Arguing over who's the greatest. And, and once I'm king, who's going to be your right-hand man? And, and who's going to get the top spot? And who deserves it? He said, you need to drop all of that and start following me. Because the son of, did, son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And y'all still don't get that. That's what he's challenging them to do here. Servant is not greater than his master. You see what your master's doing? You need to do the same. Now in verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Okay, so this is very interesting, and I, I predict that some of you who've been in church your whole life and read the Bible many times have never heard this. I may be wrong, but I think I'm right. So verse 18, when he says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a quote from Psalm 41, verse 9. Do you know what Psalm 41, verse 9 is about? You say, well, yeah, you just told me it's about Judas. But like most prophecies in the Bible, it had a fulfillment. It was about something that happened back then, but it was pointing to something in the future. So what was it pointing to back then? Psalms were written by David, most of them. This one was. David had an advisor. An advisor so wise and trustworthy that when he spoke, it was like hearing the voice of God. His name was Ahithophel. When David's son Absalom executed his, his coup and took over the throne, and, and David had to flee the kingdom 
had to flee out into the Judean wilderness uh, so he wouldn't be killed by his own son. When that happened, Ahithophel, David's most trusted advisor, defected from David to Absalom. And David was heartbroken. And he prayed, Lord, just confound the words of Ahithophel. Make them seem like foolishness. Because he thought, if that guy is on the side of my enemy, not only is it a personal betrayal, but if that guy's on the side of my son who wants to kill me, then I'm dead meat because he'll figure me out. He knows the way I think. He's never wrong. I'll be dead within a day. So David prays, Lord, let him not listen. So the first thing Absalom asks his council of advisors is, what should I do? Should I attack now? Should I attack my father and his army now? Should I wipe them out now or should I wait? Ahithophel says, they're tired, they're, 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 uh, they're confused, they're on the run, attack them now, finish it. You'll be king forever. But there's a, a plant. If you read the story, there's a plant in the, in the council of advisors, a guy named Hushai the Archite, who's a friend of David's. David has sent him as sort of a double agent and he's in there. And Hushai says, you know, Ahithophel's a great guy and he's usually right, but he's wrong this time. Because your father, the king, is he's a fighter, he's like a bear, and, and right now he's stirred up. And if you, if you go fight him now, um, you know, your guys will lose and everybody will lose heart and your whole revolution will be overturned. So what, what you need to do is wait until you can gather tens and tens of thousands of soldiers and then get a good plan and attack. And Absalom thinks, you know, that makes a lot more sense. That, that's really persuasive. Now, when Ahithophel learns that his advice has been rejected, he thinks to himself, this is not going to work. This revolution is going to end. I'm going to be on the hook because I defected from the king. So he goes home and hangs himself. Sound familiar? He defected. He was a trusted advisor, trusted friend, betrays the king, and then kills himself. It's, it's like Judas. It's the same, in many ways, the same situation. Now, because I'm a, a Bible nerd, I, I just I have to tell you this. This doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, this part, but why would Ahithophel betray David? We don't know for sure, but here's what I can show you, okay? If you looked up 2 Samuel 11, verse 3, it, in the story of when David stole Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife was named Bathsheba, right? Who is Bathsheba? It says she is the daughter of Eliam, okay? So keep that name Eliam in your head. So David steals Uriah's wife. He, uh, he arranges to have Uriah killed. Then he takes her as his own. Later on, there's a chapter that's all about David's mighty men, the 30 elite soldiers who guarded David personally, who were his best soldiers. And, you know, there are two names on there that are suddenly familiar. And one of them is Uriah, Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. Uh, but the other one is Eliam. And it says, Eliam is son of Ahithophel. So in other words, if it's the same Ahithophel, the same Eliam, Ahithophel, the guy who betrayed David was the grandfather of Bathsheba. So there's your motive. You mistreated my daughter, my, my granddaughter. You, you, you seduced her. You stole her from her husband. You killed her husband. You made her into an object of scorn, made her into an object of adultery. And I, I'm not going to do anything now, but one of these days I'm going to get you. And he did. All right. Don't get stuck on that. I know that's interesting, but I just... 
That's what Psalm 41.9 is about. And Jesus quotes that to say, David felt what I'm feeling. David felt that sting of betrayal. And then uh, again, he says, I'm telling you now before it takes place, see, Jesus' top priority is to prepare his disciples. He knows that within 12 hours, they're going to witness some awful things. They're going to see their Messiah captured without a fight. They're going to see, at least John is, they're going to see him condemned and crucified. And it's going to be awful. And he wants them to understand when they see it, this is all part of the plan. This is not tragedy. This is part of the redemption story. I knew this was going to happen, and I am walking straight into it because this is why I came. Now, let me just close with this. I want you to think about how much controversy there is in church life. And it makes us sad, doesn't it? When so many churches have uh, disunity and, and problems, so many, uh, there's so much strife in Christianity that shouldn't be there. And you think about why. And, and here's my theory. Here's, here's my current theory. I think there are people in churches that their Christianity is all based on kindness above all else. That everyone must be welcome that everyone must be treated with kindness, that people who are hurting must know the compassion of the Lord because we treat them with compassion. Kindness above all else. And then there are also Christians who their top priority is the truth above all else. We have to speak the truth of God's Word. We have to say these, these ancient doctrines that, that are the foundation of our faith and any variation from that, we have to attack it, we have to purge it because the truth is precious. And you can make an argument for either one from Scripture. There are plenty of passages of Scripture that show us that God is accepting, that God is compassionate, that He calls on us to care about the poor, to care about the hurting. Uh, kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. You can make a very biblical argument for that. On the other hand, you can make a very biblical argument that truth matters. Uh, how many times does the New Testament warn us against false teaching? Over and over and over again, the truth will set you free but only if you speak the actual truth. And, and yet, both of those have their dark sides, right? At the extreme, if all you care about is kindness, well, then you're willing to disregard what the Bible says on certain issues. Uh, doesn't matter that you're engaging in a lifestyle that I know is wrong. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to even tell you to stop doing what you're doing because all I care about is that you feel accepted. And on the other hand, if if... You're, and by the way, that leads to heresy, that leads to theological weakness. It even leads to a sense of self-righteousness because people at, that, at the extreme end of that think to themselves, I'm so much better than those judgmental people over there. And on the other end of the spectrum, if all you care about is the truth, well, that can lead to legalism, that can lead to spiritual abuse, that can lead to... Something I know, uh, anybody who's ever been a pastor, Bob and I know about this, the kind of people who just like to fight. And so they'll find any excuse to start a fight in, in church because to them, that's the ultimate symbol that I, I love the Lord is that I'm willing to make people mad. I'm willing to hurt people's feelings. I'm willing to call out sinners, even if it's something that's not even in the Scripture, but it's just something I've decided is true. 
Now, most of us, I'd say, probably all of us, fit not on either of the extremes, but somewhere in the middle, and you lean one way or the other. You can probably tell which side you lean on, and if you can't, ask someone who knows you well. Um, the answer is not to say one of those extremes is right or one is wrong, because if you're kind without truth, that's no good, but if you're, you tell the truth without being kind, that doesn't work either. Well, the answer though, as Jesus showed us here, is love. Love is kind. Love is telling the truth. Love is both. Love is sacrificial. Love is humble. Love is willing to put the other one first. And sometimes that means demeaning yourself to meet their needs. And sometimes that means making them angry because you're telling them what they need to hear, but they don't want to hear. But that's the path we need to follow is the path of love. And so when you look at the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, again, Think about a man who, at any point in his life, was more worthy of being served than anybody he was serving, and yet never let anyone serve him, unless it was an opportunity to tell a story, to tell a lesson, like when the, the woman anointed his head with oil and his feet with perfume. Uh, Jesus' purpose was not to pull rank on anyone. This is a man who, at the moment of his greatest personal stress, chose to do an object lesson of what love looks like. How love is self-sacrificial, love is humble, love cares about the other person. So are you growing in that? I believe you're probably growing in your knowledge of the truth because you're here on a Wednesday night. I can testify that you're kind people. I don't know anybody in this room that isn't. But are you growing in your ability to love others? And if so, what's the evidence? That's, that's really the ultimate test of whether we're becoming more like Jesus or not. All right, we'll continue with verse 21 next Wednesday, Lord willing, but I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your, your word and its truth and its challenges to us. We pray, O oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit would set us on a course to become more and more like you, loving others more than ourselves. For it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.